Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, are you guys ready to study the Word? Okay. Today is Matthew 24. Ugh, nervous excitement. So Jesus' words in Matthew 24 cover two main events. They cover the end of the temple, a prophecy about the end of the temple, and they also cover the end of the world, the end of days, what's gonna happen at the end of the world. Now this chapter, this study, uh, you could call it eschatology, the study of the end of times, the end of things, but this kind of study is fascinating because um, one, we're told by our king what's gonna happen before it happens. I mean, in and of itself, that's exciting. It's always cool to be in on the secret and to know what's gonna happen before it happens. But it's also exciting to know that the things that he said would happen 2,000 years ago, we're watching on the news right now. It's pretty wild that the stuff he said would come our way is starting to unfold around us. So that's fascinating. We'll put that in the box called fascinating, exciting, right? But there's another box and it's the box of division. Divisive attitudes and perspectives. Now, I bring that up because the church has a long history of disagreeing with each other. It's almost like it's a sport. And we compete against one another on what we can disagree about. And we create own little camps where we can rally together and give each other high fives and point at other people and say, you're wrong, but we're right. And this study, this kind of content has historically been very, very divisive within the history of the church. And there is a very, very high possibility that I will say some things today that will make you upset. You will sit back with your arms crossed and you will say, I do not think that word means what you think it means. I am angry at you, or I disagree, and I won't be back. Well, just know uh, that's in our DNA. Christians, we like doing that. That's why there's so many churches in every town. Um, we started to grow, so it's probably time to thin the herd a little bit, so. Uh, <clears throat> I kid. But I bring this up because uh, the two things that I mentioned, the, the, the aspect of this being a fascinating study and the as aspect of this being a divisive study, I say this because I want two warnings before we get into the study. First, um, there is a very strong possibility that we are in the last days right now, that we're coming up on the end of the end. But there's also a strong possibility that we're not. And I say that because when you look at history, the people who lived through World War II remember that being as one of the most traumatic world-shifting events that people could remember. 
And that was not included anywhere in biblical prophecy. So it is possible that there is another World War III or a World War IV before we get to the end war that is prophesied in the Bible. Does that make sense? So the idea being that this very, very well could be the end. We're coming up on it. Or, no, man, this is birth pangs. There's a lot more to come than this. You think this is going to get rough? It's going to get rougher. We can't imagine, but there's a lot of things our minds can't imagine, and that's okay. So as we study this content, as we um, uh, approach the time that we live in as we watch the news, I want us to say watchful and prayerful and evangelistic, not conspiracy theory-led. Okay? You can slip really easily into a mindset where you just kind of start giving up on stuff and not making a bit, because it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't need to save for retirement because there won't be a retirement. Guess what my retirement is? Trumpet blowing. <laughs> Being called up to heaven. That's my retirement. Right? So I'm going to book a trip to the Bahamas and spend everything. There is a temptation to not take things seriously because, hey, man, I got my ticket. Well, you don't, you, you don't know when that ticket's going to be punched. Jesus is pretty clear on that. We can know the season, but we can't know the moment. And so while we're studying the season, the season looks like we're coming up on a ripe season, but that could also just be the beginning of birth pangs. Okay? This could be just the, 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 the preparation for things to get uh, even worse or change even more. So that's one pause I want you to have as we study this. In the camp of fascination, I want you to kind of temper your understanding of like, well, I mean, we need to make some drastic decisions because clearly, well, not necessarily clearly, this is definitely in there and stuff looks a lot like, so, so what do we take away from this? We take away from the fact that Jesus is pretty clear. His word said it was going to happen and we're starting to see it. Is this it, it? We don't know yet. So stay watchful, stay prayerful, and stay evangelistic. Cool? Now, the other part of it, being divisive, um, you need to understand that there are a lot of folks who really do truly love Jesus who have different understandings or thoughts on the end times than you do. And that is okay. As long as we all agree that Jesus is, in fact, coming back for his church, we can have friendly, brotherly disagreements, sisterly disagreements about the time frame of when that actually happens. Okay? We're not going to point our fingers and say, because you believe differently, you're not a Christian. That's not how this works. Okay? There are matters of first importance. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, He's the only way to the Father. There's not ten ways to God, there's one way to God. And then there are discussions within the family about how we think this thing is going to work out. But ultimately, we all agree that he's going to return. Amen? Amen? Okay, so we all believe Jesus is going to return and rule the earth, but we are going to differ on timing. So with that said, I have two main goals for today. The first goal for today would be I want to explain to you the different views that Christians throughout the ages and currently within churches have about the events of the end times and I want to explain them to you hopefully in the easiest way possible so that you leave here at the very lowest bar that we could possibly set. You have more information than you walked in with, okay? But the other goal I have for us today is for us to read through Matthew 24 and use it to stir our heart in worship 
because Jesus is coming back for his church. Amen? So one, I wanna give you some information about what people believe so you can start understanding working through your theology because it is important. If it wasn't important, then God would not have shared what was going to happen. He would have just said, look, I need all of y'all to be just pan theologians. It's gonna pan out in the end and it don't matter. You don't, don't, don't worry about it. I'm not even gonna tell you what's gonna happen because you couldn't handle it if I told you. But in 24, he takes the entire chapter sitting down with his disciples, explaining to them, no, this is what's gonna happen, and I want it to comfort you, so we need to work through this in a way that it brings comfort to us. Amen? Okay. So, what I wanna do is let's begin with the different views. Now, in order to do this, I've put together some slides, because I'm a visual person, and it's much easier to see it than just hear it. So, um, all of these uh, perspectives, different views that we're gonna study, revolve around um, a certain understanding of a scripture in the book of Revelation. It's in Revelation 20, verses four through five. And it is, uh, so the book of Revelation was written by the apostle John. And John had a vision that God gave him about what the end was gonna look like. And in this vision, there is, in chapter 20, a record of a period of time on earth that will last a thousand years. It's referred to as a millennium. Now, um, people disagree on whether that's a literal 1,000 years or if it's um, just kind of symbolic of a long period of time. But it is a period of time, 1,000 years, called a millennium, where Jesus will physically rule in a physical body as a physical king here on earth. Are you with me so far? Okay. So, the, so all of these revolve around when that millennium, that thousand year period is going to happen. So the millennium is definitely before the eternity. It is not eternity, uh, but it is a thousand year period where Jesus is gonna rule and reign on the earth and it happens before the eternity. Uh, but uh, we all kind of disagree on when this millennial happens. So let's go to the first view and we'll put this up on the screen. This is a view called amillennialism. Ah, millennialism. So here's the view of amillennialism. <clears throat> amillennialists believe that the church age we're in right now, like right now, 2020, from Jesus' resurrection to, to today, would be represented in that first box, the church age, and it is, in fact, the millennium. It's not a thousand year period, it's a period of time where Jesus has established his kingdom and he is ruling and reigning on the earth. Okay, so for an amillennialist, this is, uh, the, the interpretation of Revelation 20 is that we're in it right now. This is currently the millennium. Sometime in the near future, Jesus is going to crack the sky, he's going to return, and at that point he's gonna resurrect believers, and he's gonna resurrect unbelievers. Unbelievers are gonna stand before the white throne judgment, they're gonna be judged for their sin, they're going to be punished eternally, along with Satan and his demons. Um, and then the new heaven and the new earth is gonna be established, and then eternity, okay? Now why is this attractive? Because man, it's easy. That's so simple, right? Now the beauty of this is that there's, there's no like, He's gonna appear and then he's gonna take the church away and then he's gonna come back and then there's a period of tribulation. No, none of that, right? There's just a period of time where we're the church and then he's gonna return and boom, it's eternity, 
right? It's kind of like that, uh, the Ford F-150 electric truck that just came out this week, the Lightning. That is very attractive, right? For those truck owners, for me personally, that's a very attractive truck. The problem with it is there's a lot of issues that I have with it. Like, where are you going to fill up? Do I get to use the Tesla stations? Do I have to find a Ford station? It is attractive, but man, there's a lot to work through. And that's like this, <laughs> okay? This is really simple. The problem is that there's like, well, also in Revelation, Satan is like bound up during the millennium. Ah, you can read the news and tell that the, the kingdom of darkness is kind of at work right now, right? So there's some issues traditionally with this. This view is very popular. Uh, it, it has its dates all the way back to the 300s. Um, a lot of uh, the reformers, Protestant reformers um, uh, believed this. St. Augustine believed this. Um, so this is a legitimate view that a lot of Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people have, okay? Let's go to the next one. This is called post-millennialism. Now, post-millennialism is pretty simple to understand. Post-millennialism means that the millennium is gonna take uh, place uh, after the church age, okay? So the idea with this belief system is that the church age, what we're in now, is gonna continue to expand worldwide. And it's gonna influence things like culture, and news, and media, and education, and entertainment, and social media, to the point where eventually, the kingdom of God and the principles of God's people are gonna spread throughout the entire world. Things are gonna get so good and so Christian that we're just gonna kinda enter into the millennium, and we're gonna have a long period of time of God ruling. Make sense? After that period, after we've entered the millennium, there's going to be a period then when Jesus returns, he's gonna resurrect the believers, he's gonna judge the unbelievers, there's gonna be judgment on the, uh, on the, um, the unbelievers, the new heaven and the new earth is gonna be established, and then we're gonna enter into eternity, okay? Now why is this attractive? Well, because this had its roots um, the earliest place you can find this is back in the 1600s, uh, late 1600s, early 1700s, during the First Great Awakening. It also had a larger resurgence during the Second Great Awakening. And if you can imagine what it, would, what it was like to live during the Great Awakening, where your, uh, you know, this, this neighbor friend of yours that you worked with, who was just a raging alcoholic, comes to a tent meeting and gets saved, and his entire life starts changing, and everybody in your town starts coming to church, and everybody starts getting changed. In your sense of the world, man, it seems like everybody's getting saved, and everybody's becoming a Christian, and things are changing. Are you, you see where I'm going with this? The sense that, man, the things of God are spreading to everybody, it seems like we're probably just going to continue to hit this point where we're going to hit a high watermark and then it's just Jesus everywhere and boom, we're in the millennium. These viewpoints are always very popular in the first and second great awakening, but as you can imagine, they started shrinking um, right around World War II. Put those pieces together. As soon as the things of the world start falling apart and you start seeing the evil and the darkness in the hearts of man, you're like, oh, maybe that's not the way things are gonna go. And so this has uh, a tradition of kind of becoming more popular as things in the world become um, more religious and less popular as things become more evil. So let's go to the next one. This is premillennialism. 
This is also referred to as classic premillennialism because it has its oldest dates. It dates back to the 100s, 200s, early church fathers believed this. Um, essentially what this is, is that we are currently in the church age and that sometime in the future, we don't know when, but some, sometime in the future during this church age, a tribulation is gonna begin. A period of seven years of tribulation on the earth where there's gonna be suffering, it's gonna be very difficult. Um, there's going to be the kingdom of darkness raising to places of power. There's gonna be wars all over the place. It's gonna be a period of seven years of tribulation. The church will be here during that period of tribulation. But at the end of that tribula tribulation, which lasts seven years, we know it's seven years because of a timeline from Daniel and from a timeline from Revelation. At the end of that seven years, Jesus is gonna crack the sky. He's going to return. He's going to raise the dead first. Their bodies are gonna raise from the dead and their spirits, which have been in heaven since they died, are gonna be reunited and they're gonna be transformed and they're gonna get a new glorified body. And then, after the dead are raised, those of us who are still alive, we will gather with him in the air and we'll receive our transformed bodies. And Jesus will, during this period, <clears throat> he will, uh, I imagine, probably circle the globe and meet his enemy on the Valley of Armageddon. There's gonna be a great war. Uh, it's not really that great because Jesus is just gonna speak a word and then poof, the enemy's gonna be destroyed and then we're gonna enter into the period of the millennium. It is a thousand year period where Jesus will rule and reign in physical form here on earth. At the end of that period, the unbelievers will be resurrected. They will be judged at what's referred to as the white throne judgment. The new heaven and the new earth will be established and then we will enter into eternity. On my fancy chart here, the T, that's for tribulation and J, that's for judgment. So this is the oldest view. This dates back to the early church, but there is another view that is very similar to this that is kind of a split from this. It believes that the millennial reign will take place uh, before eternity after the church age in its own specific thing, but it differs on when the actual tribulation is gonna happen and when Jesus is gonna return. So the next slide I'm gonna show you is, go ahead and go to the next one, pre-tribulational premillennialism. You with me? It gets weird. So here's the deal. We are currently in the church age. Right? That's a, that's a long word. I didn't mean to say it was weird because it's a, a weird theology. It's weird because it's lots of words. Uh, I'll tell you what, from this point forward, we'll just refer to this as pre-trib. Good? Good. The last one we'll call post-trib. There's also a mid-trib, but it's, a, it's a, just an honorable mention. <clears throat> so so pre-trib, pre-tribulational premillennialism, believes that we're currently in the church age. At some time in the future, we don't know when, but sometime in the future, Jesus is gonna return in almost like a, a, a secret return, and he's gonna rapture the church. He's gonna steal them away, and the moment that happens, it's gonna kickstart the tribulation. So Jesus is gonna come back, he's gonna snatch the church, and they're gonna return up to heaven, and the church is gonna be with Jesus in heaven during the seven year tribulation. You see the big difference there? And the last one, the church is gonna go through the tribulation. In this one, the church is in heaven during the tribulation. It lasts for seven years. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus will return 
again, I guess the third time, with the church, and when he arrives, he will do something very similar to describe the last one. He's going to return, he's going to meet his enemy on the battlefield, and he's going to be like, nope, and then the whole thing is going to be done, and then the enemy is going to be destroyed, he's going to be bound up for a thousand years, the millennial period will kick off, and then for a thousand years Jesus will rule and reign on earth. At the end of that, unbelievers will be resurrected, there will be a judgment, a new heaven and a new earth, and we'll enter into eternity. I mentioned that there is uh, an honorable mention here, mid-trib. Mid-trib would be Jesus returns in the middle of the tribulation. So there's three and a half years of tribulation and then he's like, bazow, and he comes and he snatches the church away and there's another three years and then he's gonna return again with the church, okay? Probably not bazow, but I don't even know where that word came from. Uh, but that is, that is not, a, I wouldn't say that's a popular view. It is a view that some hold, uh, but it's not a popular view. Now, this one, I told you um, that this one is an offshoot of premillennialism because of where the rapture happens. Uh, where did this date back? This date backs to the 1800s. So this is not found anywhere in church history up until the early 1800s when a guy named John Darby proposed this as a possible theology for the end times. Um, it was latched on by this guy named C.I. Schofield who created a, a Bible, maybe you've read it, the Schofield Study Bible, kind of outlined all of that in this Bible. And today, thanks to the Schofield Study Bible and to the Left Behind series, This is uh, the predominant view held by Christians today. All right, many of you in here probably hold to this view um, because you, uh, Tim LaHaye told you to. Um, so the question today is that you should probably want to know, maybe you don't care, but what, is, what does our church believe? Where do we fall on this? Well, as a church, we believe that Jesus is returning and we don't force you to pledge when that's gonna happen, all right? It's not written in our bylaws, it's not a cornerstone of what we believe for you to confess to us that you believe he's gonna return at any specific time. We just believe that he's gonna return and we want you to believe that too because that's a cornerstone of being a Christian, but the idea of when it's gonna happen, um, we don't make a huge argument about it. Now the next question you probably have is, Marshall, what do you believe? Uh, so let's go to Matthew 24 now. <laughs> now I'll tell you, I personally, I am a traditional premillennialist. I believe that the church is going to go through the tribulation. All right? Now for some of you, you're like, mm, I knew this was too good to be true. <laughs> go back to the, the third slide. This is the view that I would hold. All right? I'm convinced that we're, we, not our church, but the church as a whole, I don't know when it's gonna happen, but I'm convinced the church is gonna go through the tribulation. And I'm convinced the church is gonna go through the tribulation because I think that this viewpoint here lines up with the entirety of scripture. Um, I think that the New Testament teaches in an overwhelming way that suffering is a large part of our Christian faith. Okay? If you don't believe that, go back and listen to the message I preached on Matthew 17 on Easter. 
Um, Peter, 1 Peter 2.21, I didn't put these so you don't have these up on screen, but 1 Peter 2.21, it says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might also follow in his steps. Romans 8.17, the heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, um, if we provided, we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Suffering leads us to a place of being able to enjoy the glory with him. But also, not just in the New Testament, if you take into account God's resume from the Old Testament, I think that this most accurately lines up with God's resume for how he's dealt with everybody from Noah all the way up to the early apostles. Did God free Israel before or after the plagues? After. Israel went through the plagues. Now, did Israel suffer the wrath of God through those plagues? No. After about two or three plagues, we're told that the plagues didn't even touch Israel anymore. They were living in the land of Goshen, right outside the main city, and guess what? Um, You got frogs in your oven, but we don't have frogs in our oven. Like, you're swarmed with gnats, you got darkness. Guess who doesn't have darkness? Guess who didn't lose their firstborn when the angel passed over? Israel, but they still went through it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus was with them through the fire. So from my perspective, when I take into the entirety of all the stuff that God does, I think it makes more sense to understand that what God would do is he would bring our church gloriously through the tribulation as a light in the greatest darkness that has ever been cast over the entire earth. But the other reason is I believe that Matthew 24 teaches this. So with that in mind, if you're still with me, let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and let's read some scripture. So Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all of these things, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're walking out and they're like, Jesus, You see all this? Look at this temple. Isn't it beautiful? Jesus is like, you see all this, boys? Gone. All of it. Gone. So they continue their walk away from the temple. And if you saw the map that I posted on Slack of the way the city was set up, they walked out of the the gates, they walked down into the Kidron Valley, and they walked back up to the Mount of Olives. And so the way the city is set, set, the city is here, the temple is here, and there's a big wall around the outside, and then there's this valley, and then there's the Mount of Olives. So Jesus walks down, he gets back up, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciple. He's looking over the temple, and his disciples come to talk to him. Verse three, he says, as they sat on the Mount of Olives, The disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? Well, what things? Well, the things about the temple being destroyed that you just discussed. But also not just that, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So don't just tell us about the wild stuff that's happening to the temple. Please tell us about what's coming at the end. Tell us about your second coming. So verse four, Jesus answered them and said, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they're gonna lead many people astray. And you're gonna hear of wars and rumors of wars 
but see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. That's why I gave that disclaimer at the beginning. We might just be in the season of wars and rumors of wars. Because as we progress closer to this thing you're asking me about, verse 7, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. And they're gonna betray one another. And they're gonna hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and they're gonna lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So right after the woes of chapter 23, Jesus has this conversation with his disciples about what's coming at the end. Now what happens to the temple? Jesus says, you see all these bricks? Gone. Now he was right. He was prophesying that the temple was gonna be destroyed because in 70 AD it was destroyed. The Romans came in and leveled the temple. It was gone. And like gone, gone, like it's still not there today. Even though Israel is a nation, still hasn't been rebuilt. The place where it is right now, there's a mosque on it. There's no temple. So he addresses their first question, When's this gonna happen? Well, it's, it's, he gives, gives them a date, but he says this is what's going to happen in the temple, and it happens in 70 AD. But then he starts addressing the signs that are coming up to the leading to the end of the age. Now there is an important thing that we should discuss here for a moment, and that is Jesus' use of the word you, all right? I think probably the most prominent place is when he's talking about in verse nine. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, when he says you, is he talking about you, the apostles, or is he talking about the collective you as the church? You people, you church, the thing that I'm establishing, the thing that you apostles are the representation of the first fruits of. Are only you going to be delivered up, or is this a thing that the church as a whole is going to be, uh, can expect? Well, it's probably both, but I'm reading you as not just the apostles, but reading you as the collective you for us as a church, because in later verses, Jesus is continuing to use that word you, but he's describing things that will happen that in the end that have not happened yet, and the apostles are long gone. So it can't have been the stuff that's just affecting them. It has to be the stuff that's affecting you as the people of God, which means us. You follow? So when he says these are the things that are gonna happen, these are the things that as church folk we can expect. Now all of these um, disciples, they were delivered up and they were martyred with the exception of John. 
But in this context, when he's talking about what's happening, he does, by, the verse, by, by verse 14, eventually get to the point of the end. So we know he is talking about the entirety of history. And so therefore, when I read these verses, I'm seeing that Jesus is telling us as the church that as we get closer to the end, how do we know that it's the end of the age? Where we're gonna see false Christs, we're gonna see wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, great tribulation, falling away, betrayal, false prophets, lawlessness, love growing cold. Any of this sounding familiar? Any of it? Maybe one of it? All of it. With increasing measure, all of this has just been ramping up year after year. Lawlessness increasing every year. The love of people growing cold in the church, it feels like every month I'm reading some clickbait article about some leader in the church saying, you know what, I've rethought everything and I realize that Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be. That these gurus, these false Christs, these influencers online have a better line in on the things that we should be doing and the way we should be living, and it makes more sense than the strict, oppressive, colonial view of the Bible. The love of people is growing cold, and you've got to have endurance in your faith in these times because only those who endure to the end are gonna be saved. We're seeing this now and Jesus is reminding us, look, these are only the birth pangs. So when will this begin? When will the end begin? Now, I already told you where I stand on this, so I'm gonna teach from that perspective. I will maybe give a little caveat on, on why another uh, structure or belief believes this specific way, but I'm gonna be, man, I'm driving a truck and I'm not braking, all right? We're gonna go through this, and when he starts in on verse 15, things just keep getting ramped up, okay? So Matthew 24, that was two truck analogies in a service. You're welcome. Verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Matthew, thank you for that. Because, what? <laughs> so that is a footnote for Matthew to remind us, hey, you need to understand what we're talking about here. Now we're going to start dipping our toes into prophecy that happened, oh Lord, like at this point, 500 years before this? 600 years before this? 500 years before this. And so you need to understand that it's not just enough to like hear what he's saying and be like, oh Jesus, that's very interesting. Jesus is starting to thread the needle because he's quoting Daniel about things that were said before and then things are gonna be said much later. So let the reader understand. When will the end begin? Well, you're gonna see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. We'll come back to that in a minute, standing in the holy place. At that point, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Don't, don't be like Lot's wife going back to grab stuff you don't need. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing in those days, woof, better not, better not be. 
Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then, at that point, there is going to be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be again. And if those days, the great tribulation days, had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. That's how much death and destruction is coming during this period. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders as to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. See that I told you beforehand, I told you this was going to happen. Why would they need to know that this was going to happen? Because of the possibility that they're in the middle of it experiencing it. For if they say to you, look, he's on the wilderness, don't go out there. If he says, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of the Man. Look, wherever the corpse is, the vultures are going to gather. What does that mean? That means people love swarming around dead stuff. Hey, look over there. Okay. And it's like, you know what I mean? You're like, you're driving on the road out in the, in, out in the woods and you just kind of see, you can, off in the distance, you see corpses. You know what's down on the ground because they're spectators. They're there to feed. People love that. That's why social media is so popular. Because anywhere there's a corpse, the vultures love swarming over it. Unfortunately, we're vultures. And so what he's saying is, this is because the crowd is swarming. Don't spend a lot of time staring at what they're staring at because that's not what's important. Now, when Jesus is describing the end in verse 14, he says the end will come. And then he says in verse 15, the abomination of desolation is going to come. He seems to be tying in that the end is going to start with the rise of this abomination of desolation. Now, who is the abomination abomination of desolation? Well, let the reader understand they've got to go back to Daniel and they've got to do a little digging and research. Daniel 9.27, Daniel 12.11 mentions this man called uh, the the abomination of desolation. Uh, He's also referred to as the Antichrist. Um, Sometime in the near future, in the midst of great wars and rumors of wars and terrible stuff happening on the earth, when things look like it's just gonna get as bad as it possibly can get and and all mankind is gonna be destroyed, one man is gonna rise up and he's gonna say, look, I've got the solution. And he's gonna barter a peace covenant on earth to end the fighting and the wars. Now, there's all kinds of prophecy about what nations are involved in that. It's not important for this conversation. For this conversation, it's important that sometime in the future, wars are going to increase and it's going to get really bad. But a man's going to rise up and says, I've got the answer. I'm going to broker peace. And this man is not going to have his own intentions. He's going to be motivated by the kingdom of darkness. In fact, he's going to be possessed by Satan himself. And he's going to broker a period of uh, a peace covenant that's going to last about seven year period according to Daniel, but halfway through that covenant, he's going to go back on his word. He's going to break the covenant and he's going to declare war essentially on God's people. And it's going to be all out mayhem for the following three and a half years. 
But during this period, Jesus refers to a group of people called the elect. This time seems very important for the elect because in the midst of all the slaughter and the sorrow and the sadness and the tribulation, it's because of them that the days are going to be cut short. In fact, the enemy is even going to try and lead these elect astray. So who are the elect? I believe that the elect is, the elect are it's the church. That's who the elect is. Now, a pre-trib view, people who believe the church is gone, can't be the church because they're gone, who are the elect? They believe it is a group of Jewish believers who have converted to Christianity, and they're a remnant, a small group, 144,000 of them, and they're the ones who are unique during this period of time. That would be their view. But in 2 John 1, in the opening letter, John refers to the church as a, um, a lady, and he calls them the elect lady. He refers to the church as the elect. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1, we also hear a reference to the church being called the elect. Jesus is right now speaking to the apostles who are the future leaders of the church, not a representation of a small group of Jewish people that will be around during this period. But finally, I think that the elect are found, the clarification for who the elect are, being the church, is found in the following verses and some clarification to some Thessalonian verses. So let's continue reading, if you're still with me. Verse 29, immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth, buddy, they're gonna mourn because they're gonna be like, uh-oh, he's here. And they will see the Son of Man, Jesus, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, those people out there, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. All right. So immediately after the tribulation, we're told from Jesus' mouth that he's going to return. And he's going to return to gather the elect. Now, I would argue that the elect is the church because we're here. But for more clarification, because at this point, my argument rests on the idea that I'm just assuming the elect is the church. But I'm not just bringing in that. I'm bringing in some other scripture. Let's go over to Second Thess or excuse me. Let's go to First Thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen. So this is a letter that Jesus, excuse me, that Paul wrote to the book of or to the uh, church in Thessalonica, and he's addressing an issue that they have about people who have fallen asleep and may have missed the return of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or people who are in the grave right now. That's how the New Testament way, the New Testament talks about people who are dead, believers. They're just asleep because they're going to wake up again. 
We don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For if we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Here's what's gonna happen, guys. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, with a sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What's he saying? You haven't missed it, because frankly, no one's gonna miss it. It's gonna be wide open, everyone's gonna see it. He's gonna return with a great trumpet blast, nobody's gonna miss it, and those who are in the grave, they're gonna rise first, and their spirits which are in heaven are gonna meet their bodies which just rose from the dead, and they're gonna be transformed into glorified bodies. And as soon as that happens, those of us who are left, we're gonna gather with the Lord in the air, and bam, we're gonna be transformed. Okay? so. What he's describing here is that the second coming and the gathering of the saints, the resurrection, same event, happens at the same time. Not a first coming, a rapture, a snatching away, a waiting, then a coming a third time. What he's describing here to the church, the elect, is that what's going to happen to the church is he's going to return and bam, resurrection power, transformation. But that's not enough. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. When will this happen? 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Let me be as abundantly clear as I possibly can. That day, what day? The return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the gathering of the saints, the resurrection, and the meeting him in the air, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God in objection to worship so that he takes his seat in the temple. So at the very least, he's not coming back until the abomination of desolation is revealed which is in the middle of the tribulation. So, Paul is talking to the church about the second coming of Jesus, and he's describing the tribulation as a period of time that will take place first, and then he will return, and when he returns, he will gather his church, he will resurrect the dead, he will gather the living into the air, and they will give new glorified bodies. But the big question now on your lips is, okay, I see where you're going with this. I don't like it, but I see, I see it. Because listen, that's me. For the majority of my Christian life, I was a pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. I believed that the church was going to be raptured out and that we would not go through the tribulation. But upon studying the scripture, it, it required for me, and I'm not saying this for you, it required for me too much inference, assumption, and mental gymnastics to get to a place where it would require the Lord returning a second time and a third time. I don't find that anywhere in there. 
And if I'm just looking, look, prophecy can be very confusing sometimes. The book of Daniel is a good example of that. When he's talking about all these nations rising up and half of them are made of clay and half of them are made of stone and iron, I don't know what he's talking about. But there are some prophecies where it says, look, behold, Israel, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. And then he literally rode a donkey. There's some things that we can look at and from my understanding, what Jesus is describing, the way he's laying it out, seems to me like it's pretty literal in the way that he's laying this out. Paul reinforces it. Jesus also says in John 6:40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son of God, believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What's Greek for last day? Like last day. <laughs> he's gonna raise them up on the last day. So, the big question here is if this is, if this is true, if the church does go through the tribulation, why in the world? Because we're not appointed unto wrath. If God's pouring out his wrath on the earth, like he says in Revelation during the time period of tribulation, why would we even be here? We're not gonna be receiving that. No, I agree with you. If we're here, we're not receiving that wrath, much like the children of Israel lived through the 10 plagues but didn't experience most of them. They were there, but it wasn't poured out on them. But there is lawlessness being increased, and I don't want you to be confused. I am convinced that what Jesus is telling us is that we should prepare our hearts for a coming great tribulation that might require you to give your life for Jesus. And that is the issue, isn't it? Because on this earth, many of us would give our lives for a few things, and for some of us, Jesus is not on that list. Why do I believe that God would require the church to go through the tribulation? Because of the purpose for purification and maturity. Purification, maturity, they always happen in trials and tribulations and pressures. How is your faith perfected through trials and tribulations? How do we learn to fix our eyes more on him and not our own stuff through trials and tribulations? And so if the church was called to go through this to experience a purification, to go through a time of being tested, what would that look like for the church on the other side? Well, I would argue that it would be a spotless bride. It would be a church worthy to marry the bridegroom Jesus. If there's anything that we've learned over the last year, it's that many of our churches are weak, are ready to be controlled by the government at the drop of a hat. They have no backbone that the word of God is rarely taught. This is not all churches, but we have learned in the last year that many churches are unbelievably weak and not fit to marry Jesus. And if there's one thing that would purify and cleanse and mature us and get us to a place where those of us who are Christians are Christians and not here for a show, tribulation makes sense to me. So, with that in mind, let's go to verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes, becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also when you see all these things that I just described, wars, rumors of wars, when you see abomination of desolation, when you see covenants being cut and nations, organizations that have nothing to do with each other, they fundamentally, they, they, they have different ideologies but will, but will gather together and form covenants just to be against the people of God. When you see this stuff, know that the end is near, that you're at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? The generation who sees these things. Not the apostles, this generation. If you see this stuff, know you're gonna see the end. This generation is the end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, nobody knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, man, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Man, if there was not a word of conviction to us today, how do we live our lives today? So much like the days of Noah. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away because at that point it was too late. So will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know what the day your Lord is coming. Now this, uh, verse 40 and 41, it's a strong argument for the premillennial view or the pre-tribulation view. Look, look, they're standing there and then, and then one's left. Well, it could also be that this is the very end of it and he has just returned and you got two people there and now there's only one because the other one is gathered with the Lord in the sky. It, there, it requires a lot of assumption to believe that this would be just a secret rapture and a taking away rather than the event he's been describing in this chapter. So therefore, stay awake for you do not know what, the day, what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. He would have been ready because he knew the moment. Therefore, also, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him the food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. So truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. In that period we talked about, the millennium, and then into eternity, there will be great responsibility for those who showed themselves faithful in little because they can be trusted to be faithful in much. But if that wicked servant says to himself, ah, my master's delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come one day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man. Now let's go back up real quickly to the fig tree, because I, I read through a lot of scripture. The fig tree is an important part because the fig tree could have two interpretations. The fig tree could be, as we've read previously in Matthew, Israel. It could be a, a comparison. It could be a, a symbolism for Israel. So when you see Israel start to bud out again, and Israel is a nation, that's something that started, you better take watch. 
But the fig tree could also be just plant material or or, um, uh, planting imagery to a bunch of uh, people who understand farming culture. When you, you guys understand how when you see a fig tree sprout out its leaves, you know that it's summer, like you don't need a weatherman to tell you it's gonna get summer in the next week. No, you can look, there's no weathermen, there's no news, so you just look at the fig tree. The moment I see this, I can tell a season is changing, something's coming. When you are able to identify that, the generation that sees those things takes place will also see his return. Now, I don't know if this is Israel, if this is just farming analogy, But the purpose of all of this is to give us some reinforcements or some understandings about the way we're supposed to be living. We don't know the day, but we can know the season. We're given what the season looks like, so we're supposed to read the signs of the times and we're supposed to prepare. What that means is don't put off work and get lazy like a lazy servant just because you are convinced it's gonna happen on a specific day. Don't work just because you think he's gonna show up and check your work on this day. Be diligent at your work constantly because there is much work to be done and we need to be found working when he returns. We're supposed to treat every moment with urgency, expectancy, and worship. So, as we read through these events, Jesus tells us this is gonna happen so that we won't be afraid or be prone to conspiracy, but we can look at them and say, (laughs) I knew this was coming. When people come to me and say, did you hear? No, but I'm not surprised. Did you hear about what these nations are doing? I did hear, and I'm not surprised because I know what's coming. Nobody can stop it. And what's funny is these nations think that they're being autonomous, but they are putty in the Lord's hands. He directs the hearts of kings. He does what he wants with these nations to fulfill his purposes. He's having his way, and these fools don't even realize it. The enemy is saber rattling, and the Lord is saying, I gave you the sabers. You're going to fulfill my purposes. The purpose of this chapter is to build our faith so that you're not afraid no matter what's coming. And it fuels our worship because church, Jesus is coming. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.